You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're still doing the thing here in the studio, <laughs> uh, talking about the Bible, reading the Bible. Had to purge the munchkins from the, among us before we could get started. <laughs> yeah, I got to run the kids out there. The oldest wants so bad to be a part of this, but I think she would kind of be a little bit bored just sitting in here because yeah. we don't have a microphone for her. That could be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Seven-year-old microphone. Well, and the, she's just too freaking smart, and she would probably ask me a question I couldn't answer. Yeah, she is. I mean, <laughs> she's a pretty, pretty intelligent child. I. Yeah, she's a good kid. I. It's it's fun whenever you have nieces and nephews that are smart because then you get to mess with their brains, and you aren't the parent, and you don't have to deal with the fallout. So mm-hmm. I, I'm really enjoying having you know other people's kids to inflict. Sure. <laughs> Well, that being said, there are people who want to hear what kind of weird things we think of. About the Bible? About the Bible. Okay. Specifically. Specifically. Okay. Well, because we're going to have to limit you to that. (laughs) Darn it. Uh, No, actually, there's so much in the Bible, we will never get through it all. But uh, we left off in 2 Samuel uh, verse 10. Uh, We'd been talking about the sons of wickedness and how we have got this really weird uh, wording that's only found three times in the Bible. And... It's really interesting to me that nobody picks up on that language. And the thing is, I think when we look at um, what follows that verse and when we start moving forward in what God's saying, the issue of parentage is huge. So the fact that God is making this contrast between his sons, that you know, David being his son and later Solomon being his son with the sons of wickedness, I think that we need to be taking that as it's written and not trying to impose some kind of idiom to make it easier or more tasteful uh, upon Christians. Because in verse 11, this is what God says. It says, from the time of, well, we're going to keep going past verse 11, but we're going to start with verse 11. Let's start there. I've got so much information in my brain. It's like bumper cars, all the thoughts. So, (laughs) but verse 11, from the time I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So weird verse break, because you got to remember these numbers for chapter and verse were not part of the original manuscript. They were added later. And the person who did this, whose name I forgot, uh, he was doing this under some weird circumstances and sometimes his breaks don't always make sense. And that can really impact how we read the scripture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, but the writer is saying the enemy nations are not going to oppress Israel the way they did during the time of judges. You know, if you, you, you followed us through our judges series, you know, that basically everything would be going good. People would start messing up. God would say, I've had enough. And he would bring in another nation, the Midianites, the Philistines, the Mm -hmm. Moabites. And he would say, I'm going to put you under these other nations to oppress you so that you will call out to me, so that you will turn back to me. And then he would raise up a judge. The judge would run them out of the country Mm -hmm. and the people would do fine until the next time. And we did that. Was it seven times that we did that in the book of Judges? It was a a few. So, yeah. So God's saying, okay, we're done with that system. This is not how it's going to work. And so David's going to have rest unlike the judges. So God also does something really interesting here and he flips the script. David had proposed that he build God, he builds God a house. God says, I'm going to get ready to build you a house. David was speaking of a physical structure. God is talking about a legacy. Right. He's talking, yeah. So God literally redefines the conversation by redefining the word. And I think that's really cool that God says, hey, you're, you're, you're using the word wrong. You're, you're approaching this in the wrong manner because my house really isn't about a building. Mm-hmm. It is about the people who, who fill those buildings. So um, again, some great teaching points 
from that. But verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie, in, lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. Notice the emphasis, your offspring comes from your body. Now, why in the world would God need to clarify that this offspring would come from David's body? Would it have anything to do with the Nephilim? That is absolutely one aspect that it could have uh, from the Nephilim. It could have something to do with the fact that David was not Saul's son. He was Saul's son-in-law who took over. So there's that. Could it, I mean, could it also be um, denoting that, hey, kingship in my country is not about, uh, kingship in Israel is not about embodying the son of a god. Right, because all or, the... Or being a supernatural being. Yes, because the other kings of other nations, what we've got to remember, they were conceived in a ritualized sex act mm-hmm. and where either the god was believed to descend and have sex with this temple prostitute or the god was believed to possess the king to have sex with the queen or temple prostitute in this temple. And this is how we get people like Gilgamesh, who were considered two-thirds divine, because the king, the human king was believed to be conceived in the same way. So he was partly divine. Mm-hmm. And then you have, or he was divine. And then you've got the god inhabiting the king, possessing the king. Mm-hmm. And so he is divine, obviously. So the child has two fathers now, and an earthly mother, so the offspring is two-thirds divine. And so what you have here... For for anyone playing at home, uh, that I mean, you, when you think about it, the the this ritual prostitution, the reason it's part of the reason it's so offensive is not because it's just oh it's dirty sex. Mm-hmm. It's because it's it's a ritual ritual ri, ritual ritual. Why am I struggling with that word? A ritual reenacting of the Genesis six account. Yes. Yes. And it's it's saying, it's not just saying we're going to, it is, but it isn't. It's not just saying we want mm-hmm. to worship other gods. It's saying we want to worship other gods so badly, we want their presence to manifest here physically. Yes. I mean, it's when you get really down to it. And, and so... And gods who will oppress women through sex mm-hmm. and use sex to control them. What does God never do in his word? He never uses sex to control a woman. And, you know, huge difference that we overlook because we don't understand the basis of where these kingships and why they were so significant, you know, comes from. Mm -hmm. And so when God says, this son is going to come from your own body, Mm -hmm. he's, he's saying that David is not going to participate in the things these other nations have participated in. Yeah, which, and then when you do get to the conception of Jesus, who is the God-man conceived of God, he's not conceived there's in no, a ritual sex act at the temple. Yeah, and there's no human participant embodying or allowing this God to possess. Right. And so it is completely supernatural, not quasi-supernatural. And that's the funny thing, too. I just thought of this. When you look at manifestations of evil, what we have in the Bible is they they— almost do the miracle. They almost do the same thing that God's doing. Right. They, they never do it in the, the complete way that God is doing it. So there is that, that facade of power. There is this facade of something that should evoke wonder, but it always falls short. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, the offense should be so high that people would say, we want to worship a God that deals with you know, they're, they're part and parcel with human be- humanity is sexual oppression of women. Right. So um, we could probably look at some really interesting implications that flow out of that for today's church, but we won't. Uh, well, and, <laughs> no, and, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, when you look at the place for sex in the, in the Hebrew culture and in, the, um, in, in Christianity, mm-hmm. it's not supposed to be with the temple prostitutes. It's supposed to be in the home. It's supposed to be private. It's, it's, and so that there is no mistaking, 
of what's going on. Who's out there. participating in what and who's present. And well, and okay, so real quick, because this has been a huge topic, and I, we even saw a post this morning, you and I were talking about it, about wives submitting to their husbands sexually. Okay, totally cool with that. But what everybody, and when I say totally cool with that, you know, that's in a healthy, loving relationship where it's not being used as a weapon. So I make that caveat. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and everyone wants to seem to forget that we're, you know, as the body of Christ, we're commanded to submit to one another. Um, that exactly, and that men are supposed to love their wives, and yeah. Well, and, and Paul talks about that. The wife's body, her wife, the wife's body does not belong to herself, and the husband's body does not belong to himself. This is a radical thing. It's a two way street, and never before in the cultures was it a two way street. Right, and so the fact that a wife had this this right to her husband's body. And to say it's it belongs to me within this covenant relationship and not to be shared with everybody else was completely flipping the script for that culture. Mm-hmm. And so we just think, oh, well, it's just talking about women because that's the only thing they put on a meme. Memes are horrible things to get your theology from. Uh, yeah. uh, so, um, but yeah. Effective conversation starters, but... <laughs> And if it, yeah, if you're going to use it to start a conversation, then absolutely go for it. But please, please, please take it further. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, just the, I don't know. I don't know if this needs to be the, <laughs> the show about <laughs> sex and marriage, but it's, we really, I mean, we, the church has just got to do a better job at communicating about it mm-hmm. and quit hiding behind euphemisms. Uh, yeah. Quit hiding. Yeah. Quit hiding behind euphemisms and, and letting, Providing effective tools for for couples mm-hmm. that because it really seems like there's I don't know the one of the, one of the churches uh, that that Mickey and I went to for a while they had a, a a class and it was a regular class that repeated and one of the Mickey asked one of the the one of the other women in the church about you know what she thought of it and she was like. Um, we've had some friends who have attended it, but we're not going to discuss our. We're not going because we're not going to discuss our sex life in a group. <laughs> so it's either, it's either like not discussed at all, or we're expected to Too share it in a weird <laughs> way. And it's like, you know, there there doesn't seem to be a, a good balance, right? Um, and you know, we but we've got to figure out a way to to work on letting people know yeah you have to have a conversation and and mm-hmm. part part of submitting to one another is is having a conversation uh-huh. and developing healthy expectations yes yes for both parties yes and and, and yeah and you know again this is this is where I'm cutting off because I've got like so many scandalous conversations in my head that are great examples, but I don't want to take again not the right format for those conversations. Well and, and I and I don't want to I don't want this to become just the right. marital counseling show. It's, I guess, <laughs> not at all where we're started, but but this is kind of more the esoteric. Uh, well, but uh, since uses we uses of sex, since we brought it up, I do want to give a really great uh, resource um, to love, honor, and vacuum. Oh my goodness, and such a great resource for men and women. Um, Sheila, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce her last name because I haven't heard it pronounced out loud and it would probably, I'd probably butcher it. But she actually did a 20,000 uh, woman study, of mostly Christian a women. Survey, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's being submitted for peer review right now. Sure. So, yeah. I mean, this is how good the, what, the quality of the study that was done, the, the survey that she offered, and talking about what women have been taught about sex. And she has written a great book. It's just launched the 1st of March. Uh, so it's, this is actually really timely that we bring it up. If you want some good, healthy, balanced Christian perspective on the sexual relationship in marriage and how that should be something that is fulfilling and joyful for both partners, Go check out her website, check out her blogs. She has some very specific targeted posts about mechanics and communication skills. And, you know, she's not shy about it. And I love that. But I bring it up and because number one, we just kind of, you know, fell into that rabbit hole. But at the same time, this kind of 
teaching and the views on marriage, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that come out of these spiritual principles impact how we live our faith. Yeah. And so... Uh, and Christian men, the, uh, the sentence that is going to fix your sex life is never going to be, you need to submit to me. Right. Right. If you have to tell someone that, you're probably not a great leader. You know, <laughs> just, to, um, just to be honest. Now, if you can inspire submission because you're being loving and kind and honorable in the way you conduct yourself, that's a great blessing. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that any woman feels coerced to give if it's inspired and not commanded. And so, uh, you know, and now women, we do, we submit to, and I know this is going to be controversial. We submit to our husbands sometimes as an act of will just to, to help be obedient and even that submission comes with certain caveats, and I know some people aren't going to hate that, but um, if you've got a problem with it and you're a woman, join us in Scandalous. We'll talk it. We'll, uh, we'll hash it all out. So anyway, back to David. So yes, we have this instance where he's being told the son is going to come from his own body. Uh, one, to refute that idea that Absolutely not. This is not going to be a Nephilim. This is not going to be a Rephaim. This is not going to be any of those half human, half mm -hmm. divine hybrids. This is a human being that God is going to choose. It's also saying that this son is going to be David's son. He's not going to be adopted in like David was into Saul's family. He's not going to be an outsider brought in mm -hmm. to fulfill this role of a son because none of the sons uh, qualify. Uh, it also says that it's not going to be a trusted servant. Remember with Abraham, with Eleazar, God, he, Abraham says, right. you know. It, Just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. A absolutely. And so. And, we, we've had people looking for loopholes in this in the past, apparently. Uh, Oh, well, and that's the thing. That's what people do with rules. You give, I mean, not just the Bible, but with rules, people look for loopholes. And, you know, you and I are some of the best at that. We were trained by the world's expert in that, our father. And so... Yeah, living with our father was like a master class <laughs> in semantics. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, God's like, we're going to just cut out all the ambiguity, and I'm going to say exactly what I mean and exactly what you need to know. So, uh, you know, Thank God for that. But Psalms 89, again, connected. And it's this connection where we're going to see very specifically laid out this, this rejection of other cultural norms and practices. And when Psalms 89, verse 36, we see a pairing of the offspring and the throne, just like it's been um, used here in 2 Samuel 7. And we also find this concept of how this eternal kingship works as part of the fabric of other ancient cultures. So uh, we find it in the, some Assyrian text, and we find it in some Phoenician text, and we'll look at some of those. But when we find the Bible taking borrowed language from other cultures, and we've talked about this before, what the Bible will do, it'll take these words and these phrases and concepts from the cultures that surround the nation of Israel, it's things that the people of Israel are very familiar with, and just like God took that word house earlier, that bet, and redefined it for David mm -hmm. within this context, mm -hmm. God does the same thing with these foreign concepts. Takes it from being a, a building and makes it like the, the Klingon sense, you know, like <laughs> the house of Moog. Yeah. Or Martok or... <laughs> or or if we wanted to, you know, go historical, Gowron. we could say the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. <laughs> I, I, I'm, bringing, I'm bringing in something people might understand if they're nerds <laughs> like me, you know? Right, right. Yeah, but you know, the, this idea of a legacy. And uh, so when God uses these phrases, we shouldn't be afraid of them. He is repurposing them to use a Pinterest um, mm -hmm. <laughs> terminology there. So, yeah, he, he's saying, I'm going to make... The, the definition conform to my reality, I'm not subject to their reality. Right. And so um, we're going to verse 13. He says, and he shall build a house for my name. And he's talking about David's son. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God's going to build this dynasty that David is going to be the head of. And it's this dynasty in turn is going to build God's house. So God builds David a house. Mm -hmm. And then the dynasty or the house of David will build God a house. So, um, you know, this is 
this is kind of this reciprocal relationship we see with God and humanity that's portrayed throughout the Bible, and it's kind of boiled down within this one family line. And the son of David is going to owe his success to God's direct intervention, just like David does. Mm -hmm. And verse 14, and I think this is an interesting verse. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with stripes of sons of the sons of men. So this, this verse is specifically speaking of Solomon. We're going to know this uh, later on. It's gonna, we're going to see where, how this gets fulfilled. And Solomon's going to be adopted by God. And now the thing is, divine adoption is not something you find in any other culture, according to most scholars. Now, I haven't had a time to read all of the ancient literature to see if that's true, but most scholars... Can't believe you haven't read every ancient piece of literature. I know. I should make better use of my time, but... <laughs> but it's definitely not so common that anything I've read cites it, and it's not, and it's not so common that people say that it's there. So it, it makes sense, too, when you think of the, of the way it happened. Gods didn't need to, do, to adopt sons. Right. These sons were supposed to be the progeny of these gods, so adoption was irrelevant to them. Mm -hmm. And so here we have like this crazy statement where God is claiming a son by divine fiat and instead of fathering a son, a biological son. And the references to discipline here, these are limiting statements. God's saying, I'm not going to pour out all of my divine wrath on him. I'm going to chastise him the way a human father chastises a human son. Mm -hmm. it, it's not destruction. It, it really is correction, which has some really crazy implications, but the biggest thing is we know this can't be talking about Jesus, right. and so we need to be careful not to read too much into this too quickly. Yeah, and kind of also, does it ever say like how old Solomon was when he took the throne? I'm not there yet. Don't push me. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm expecting you to be precognitive now. Yeah, no, I, I probably knew the answer to that at one point, but I've slept since sure. then. I'm, I'm sure it's something we could look up easily. Yeah. That's, uh, I'll do that here in a minute, just to satisfy my own curiosity. But this idea that, that God can say, hey, I'm, I'm going to adopt a son was, a, again, that radical departure from what was expected. Uh, verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I, t as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, it's, it's interesting to note that First Chronicles 17, which is a recount of this conversation between David and God, completely omits any reference to Saul. And so we have nothing said about him in First Chronicles. Why? Because we're looking at David. The writer of Chronicles really doesn't care about Saul. He wants us to know what God does with David. And you have to kind of imagine that some of this was made, these promises were made to kind of allay David's fears because David had stepped in and taken over Saul's house. God's love had departed from Saul. David had seen the, the outcome and the ramifications of what happened to Saul when that happened to him. And so when David's, you know, here's, he's in the same position Saul was, anointed by God, chosen by God, because Saul was all of those things. Mm -hmm. And God, God leaves Saul, and he sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. You've got to think that somewhere in the back of David's mind, he's got to think that's a little bit of a possibility. David's. I mean, it, it's. I, I guess probably. I mean, well, you got to remember too. He's responsible for for mediating and mitigating the impact of that evil spirit on Saul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He he sat there in that throne room while Saul was losing his mind. And had spears flung at him. So this was not something like where we've you know spent weeks and kind of, you know, we've read about it, but we didn't live it. Yeah, yeah. We, we get the advantage of, the, the privilege of, of looking back on it. Yeah. And, and so, to, you know, and when you have those big life experiences, they leave a mark. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when you think of David's that shepherd boy who got called out of the field, put in the royal court... And now he's responsible for the mental health of this adult, this king of Israel. That's going to leave a mark. Sure. Okay. And yeah. so, I mean, I, I follow. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, I think sometimes we've just, it, we forget the progress of David. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 
So, you know, here he is, he's talking about building a temple for God. And just a few chapters ago, he was nobody. And his life has just been this crazy roller coaster ride. And it's, it's the same person, you know, it's not mm-hmm. David, the shepherd, and then another David, the king, like some people have suggested, there's actually suggestions that there are like several different Davids in this book that have all been lumped together into one narrative, but they aren't the same person. That's not what the Bible's telling us. It's the same person, right? which honestly should give us a lot of hope when we look at our own lives to think, okay, if David could go through all of this, mm-hmm. and this is where he wound up, what can God do with my life? So anyway, verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made, um, made sure from forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So again, this verse all refers to Solomon. He's the biological son of David. He's going to be adopted by God. He will commit iniquity. It's not an if, it's a when. He's going to mess it up. God's going to discipline him. And um, this is not, so much of this does apply directly to Solomon alone. Mm -hmm. But there is also that aspect of beyond. Because when we start talking about your throne shall be established forever. Now we're moving beyond Solomon because we all know that David's dynasty isn't going to last forever. Sure. Uh, It's not going to endure in the literal sense. And within this context of, of Samuel, um, we do find this, this, the idea of divine kingship and forever or eternal kingship really connected that you've got to have the God part with the human part for there to be an eternal kingdom. The two have to meet together. Mm -hmm. And so I want to look at how this is addressed in some parallel cultures. And so I'm going to read from the Code of Hammurabi, which I think a lot of us are already familiar with. And so... I know of it. I haven't read it. (laughs) Why not? uh, It's really interesting what's in there because... Don't read cuneiform? Well, you know, that that kind of... They have English translations. Anyway. And (laughs) by the way, again, not hidden knowledge from the rest of the world. You can go online, look up the Code of Hammurabi. You can find PDFs of direct translations. It's not hidden. So, you know, that's the great thing about the time we live in. You can find all this. Mm Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be an expert, and you don't even have to go to a specialized library anymore. You and, don't even have to go to the public library anymore. Right? Yeah, you can just, sitting on the toilet on your phone, <laughs> you can find all this stuff. It's crazy how far we've come. So, uh, anyway, so from the Code of Hammurabi, when the August King Anu, King of Anunnaki, deities, and the God of Enlil, the Lord of heaven and earth, who determines the destinies of the land, allotted supreme power over all the peoples of Marduk, the firstborn son of the god Ea, exalted him among the Agigu deities, named the city of Babylon with its august name, and made it supreme within the regions of the world, and established for him within it eternal kingship, whose foundations are as fixed as heaven and earth. So we have that, the same words, eternal kingship. Hmm. So, and you know, that language sounds so familiar. I mean, all hmm. of it, we, we think of it as being part of biblical language. Well, don't be surprised. It's not saying that the Bible's knockoff. It's not ripping off everybody else's stories. We talk like the people we talk like, because this is the culture we're in. Yep. And so it's the same thing. So from the Baal cycle, as for your enemy, O um, Baloo, for your enemy, you'll smite, you'll destroy your adversary, you'll take your eternal kingship, your sovereignty that endures from generation to generation. This is from a letter to a Ugaritic king. I do pronounce you, Baloo Sapuni, uh, the eternal son, the Ataru, the Anatu, and all the gods of Elishia, prayers of splendor for your eternal kingship. Again, so the phrase is there, and there's several Assyrian king scripts that also contain references to eternal kingship. I'm not going to read all those, but I think you're kind of getting a sense. Eternal kingship is the right of a divine king. Mm-hmm. You, you, you don't expect a kingship to fade away if it's sponsored by a deity. And so 
the thing is, everyone in Israel knew this. This was not some kind of sudden revelation to Israel. Oh, wait a minute. There can be eternal kingship. God can do this. This is what happens when you have deity involved in a king's life. They they knew it. Mm-hmm. This is just true. And what is so crazy about it, God is saying, I can take this kingdom that's made up of a bunch of inter- interlopers, the, these this ragtag crew that just happened to wander into Canaan who had quote-unquote, no right to the land, Mm. I'm going to establish them as an eternal kingship. Or to put it another way, the God of Israel has displaced the Canaanite gods and is exposing their promises of eternal kingship as lies while instituting his own eternal rule in their place. He's overturning all the things that happened in the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. So we're right back there when God dispersed the nations and he lauded them according to the sons of God when those divine beings were took over and God said, Hey, Israel's mine. This is this is my place. Y'all guys can do whatever you want, wherever you want. Mm -hmm. Go to your rooms, make that noise. But in my place, in my house, you don't get to act this way. Now God's saying, Yeah, you've been in there, you've made a mess. I'm coming back. Right. I'm redeeming the land. And so this king that he's putting over his land, though, when you put it in the context of what's going on within these other kingdoms, the kingdoms that had been in this country ever since Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt to escape the famine Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years ago, this is beyond wild and inconceivable because David's not the son of a nobleman. He is not one of the Rephaim. He's not one of the Nephilim, unlike Saul, who could be, I mean, Saul wasn't, but Saul could be mistaken for one. Right. And so here we've got this shepherd. We've got the youngest son, the forgotten the son, the son who wasn't even invited to the dinner when the prophet showed up. Mm-hmm. He's an outlaw. He's been called a terrorist. He's been run out of his own land and separated from God according to his own words. And now God says, hey, you are my son. Why? Because I said so. Right. For the people at this time, this would have been such a new concept that it would have taken a lot to wrap their minds around. Now, we as Christians, why can we call ourselves sons and daughters of God? Because God said so. Yeah. Yeah. We're so comfortable with it. It doesn't even phase us. It's Mm -hmm. just a part of our Christian vernacular. To these people back at this point in time, it wouldn't have even made sense. It, it, they would have had to wrestle with this to even accept it. I mean, this is like somebody saying the sky's purple and not blue or red and not blue. I mean, it, it just goes against everything they know because functionally, David was nobody. He was nothing with absolutely no right to the kingship. He couldn't even claim that he was um, a great warrior when he was chosen to be a king. Right. He didn't become a great warrior until after God chose him. Mm -hmm. So everything in David's story is reversed. And so the the really cool part of this is God's going to take this nobody that he has brought up for himself, Mm -hmm. and he's going to use David to execute judgment on these illegitimate gods and kings within Canaan. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying in last week's. Yeah. He's put, and he's, <laughs> he's putting the fight, putting the fight back where it belongs. Mm-hmm. So I think, no, I think that's a pretty interesting uh, thing of uh, turn of events. Well, and, w- and when you bring all of this conversation back to you, know, all this background information to this conversation, now this conversation is so much bigger than God going, hey, guess what? You can have a pretty throne to sit on, and you can mm. have a nice palace, and oh, yeah, you're going to rule over Israel. Oh, that's great. Even that idea of ruling and being a king, some of the splendor is gone in our minds because we have had so many depictions of kings in movies and books, and it's kind of like, oh, this is what happens to good people. 
Right. It, it's it's not. Cinderella doesn't get to become the queen. Snow White doesn't get to, you know, live with Prince Charming forever. That, that's not real life. Mm-hmm. And these people here, they understood that. And David understood that. And so I, it just, the very fact that David could be king was awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. And it should be awe-inspiring. So we're going to pause the conversation between God and David here. And we're going to move into Psalms 89. And um, this is, we're doing this because, as Zamora noted, 89, Psalm 89 explains Psalm 7, or Samuel 7. So I love the psalm. Uh, man, it's long. So we're probably going to spend the rest of this episode and going into the next episode because it is a long psalm. And I'm like, you know, we just need to go through all of it. Uh, psalm 89, it's unique because it is a song of lament. However, it's a reverse song, a psalm of lament. Most songs of lament begin with the author pouring out their questions and it starts the lament. They kind of get themselves straightened out by the end of it. Yes. Yeah. Why have we been afflicted? And why is evil part of this world? And where are you, God, in the middle of all this? And, and you know, and he spends his time railing against injustice for a while, and he demands to know what God's going to do about it. But then he he begins, like you said, to get himself kind of lined out and he begins to understand God's sovereign, God's king, and he needs to trust that. Now, this psalm actually begins with affirming God's faithfulness and celebrating um, God's love with this kind of renewed commitment by the psalmist. And so we open with these affirmations and praises, but we close with unresolved questions and unanswered demands of God. So instead of rising to this crescendo of praise, we're, we're left with this minefield full of doubts. And that's very unusual for any psalm. And so despite the fact that this begins as probably some of the highest praise in all of psalms for God and his person, uh, it often ends up being a psalm that's neglected and ignored because it doesn't leave you comforted. Mm-hmm. It actually still leaves you very, uh, very conflicted. And this is not a modern phenomenon. I kind of um, mentioned this last week. Uh, Ibn Ezra, who was a rabbi who lived around 1160, he recounts the story of a scholar who considered this the last half of the psalm to be some of the most blasphemous things ever written. Right, And he says... Uh, and he based his own view of the psalm on that, and he he refused to uh, even acknowledge that the psalmist wrote the words. And he said that these were things that idolaters were writing about God and had added to the psalms to corrupt it. So he he did not believe it was actually part of the canon. Um, there's this idea that reading the Psalms was was very blasphemous because you you know it does present a very um, it's a troubling view of God. I mean, and we're going to get into that, and you're going to see. Oh, wait a minute, this isn't how we like to think about God. But he would even you know when he talked about the story of the scholar um, Eben Ezra, he he actually said the scholar refused to hear it read in his presence because he didn't want to hear that kind of blasphemy. Hmm. And so when we start looking at problems with uh, with the modern church reading the Psalms, we can know it goes back to some very deep roots. Now, other part, other rabbis read this part of the Psalms very closely to how Christians read it, which, you know, David's reign is might not be perfect and it may not have perfect continuity, but it is established and it would be established in the Messiah. Now, the Jews are still looking for the the Messiah. We as Christians, obviously, we believe that Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. I shouldn't say Christ is the Messiah because Christ is the Greek or, word for... Greek word for the Messiah, which <laughs> means the anointed one. Yes. So, the anointed one is the anointed one. 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so the, the superscription of the psalm attributes it to Ethan the Ezraite. I, I, I love trying sometimes getting all these vowels in. Uh, Ezraite. Uh, Ezra is almost the same name as Zerah, and Zerah is found in First Chronicles 2.6, and we find that Ethan is a son of Zerah along with Heman. And so, and Heman, the Ezraite, is credited with writing Psalm 88. And in 1 Kings 4.31, Solomon is, praising, is praised as being wiser than the sons of Zerah, who, considered, who were considered to be exceptionally wise in their own right. So I'm giving this background for a reason when we're going to get into this more. But at 1 Chronicles 15.9, Ethan and Heman were, were named by David as temple musicians, specifically to sing and play the bronze cymbals. Mm-hmm. And why is all this important? Okay, if you accept the superscription as being correct, then the psalm is written no later than the reign of Solomon. Okay. Okay. It could be written as early as during the reign of King David, David, but the 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 timeline is very close and if you accept it as being written at that point in time, now the psalm's prophetic. It's looking forward to mm-hmm. that time when David's um, dynasty is cut off. And we know that eventually the dynasty is going to be cut off. The people are going to be sent to exile and the, the Davidic throne has yet to be reestablished on this earth. Now, of course, most modern scholars don't accept the superscription as being part of the original text. They think they were added later, Mm -hmm. whether or not they were based on tradition that would associate the, that particular author to that particular Psalm is up into debate. And if that's the case, then this is someone in the middle of the exile saying, hey, this psalm reflects our experience today. Right. So there's also the possibility, of, according to some scholars, that it wasn't written until they were in exile. I, I, I'm always going to go with the earlier dates. I, I, that's just who, who I am and how, I, how I'm kind of wired. I, I think that even if it wasn't specifically written down at the earliest date attributed to it, it was still in existence, at least in the oral tradition. Right. And so I'm, I'm always going to, um, I'm always going to follow you tend to lean that way. Yeah. So full disclosure there, but either way, no matter what you think about it, we have this glimpse into the Davidic covenant Mm -hmm. and we see how it was supposed to function and the purpose behind it. Now, the idea of, of temple musicians being seers, which seers, if we remember back our discussions mm-hmm. with Samuel, that's the earliest name and title given to prophets in the Bible. Right. That's explicitly stated in the text. First Chronicles 25 begins with a list of temple musicians and their duties. Heman and his sons are described as prophesying with lyres, canors, mm-hmm. so you can go back to that episode if you like, harps and cymbals. All the sons of Heman were known as the king's seers, according to the promise of God to exalt him, David, in there. That's verse 5. Okay. So this implies that the gift of serving, um, of seeing or prophesying, is a familial gift that, that does run in, in families. Okay. Now, Heman and uh, Ethan were brothers. And so, and since I don't have any problem with, prophesying being a part of the artistic musical gifting. Um, for those of y'all in the paddle store, you can see my thesis. It's in the files. Um, I, I don't have a problem with it, with the superscription being going back to these temple musicians prophesying, Hey, this is what's going on. Sure. And so um, now the other part of this too is, even if this was not written before the exile, it still is a prophetic psalm in the sense that it reveals something about the supernatural realm. Mm-hmm. Only a prophet, only a seer can look into the supernatural realm and report back to a mere mortals, you know, <laughs> what's going on. Right. And so that kind of gives us the background for the psalm. It is prophetic. It is all about the supernatural and also how that supernatural impacted the Davidic reign. So wherever you want to put it as far as time-wise, doesn't matter. The point is you're still going to come up with the same message. Mm -hmm. So just one way to look at how to deal with the conflict concerning this, because there's lots of conflict. 
verse one says, I will sing of the steadfast Lord, uh, love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. So here we have our first lexical connection, shared words between 2 Samuel 7 and Psalms 89, steadfast love, chesed. And 2 Samuel 7.15 says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. So here, this is God's talking to uh, David through Nathan. And so Malvin, who is a, one of the rabbis we've referenced before, he defines faithfulness as a natural course of events. And I think this is really interesting. And God's stad- steadfast love as God's supernatural deeds for humanity. So he reads the psalm as contrasting. There's the faithfulness to all generation, which is just the natural course of events. Mm-hmm. But the st- steadfast love, this chesed, is God's supernatural investiture into David's house specifically. And while we don't have the word for generation in 2 Samuel 7, the idea is definitely there. I'm going to give you a son of your, you know, of your own body. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously this existence of generations within a dynasty is something that I think all of us should be able to grasp without having to have that specific word. Right. Now, if Malbum's definitions are correct, then the rule of David is sponsored by and is an expression of God's supernatural work upon this earth. So the divinic kingdom is not just God saying, hey, I need somebody to hold this place for me. It is directly supernatural. And so by the way of Micah 7.2, the sages connect steadfast love as a quality exhibited only to Abraham. And sorry, Micah 720. And they read this verse as the beginning of a connection between David and Abraham. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see that this is very accurate. We're going to have lots of evidence pointing us that direction. And we've already seen some. Right. Pardon me. <laughs> Our uh, children seem to be active today. <laughs> it sounds like they're having fun, though. So, <laughs> well, violent fun, maybe, but they're having fun. <laughs> so. Uh, that one sounds more like a fit. We may need to go investigate that in a moment. So, You're the dad. I let you make the call. This is a great thing. I have no responsibility in this. Yeah, yeah being the aunt. <laughs> so, verse two. For I said, steadfast love will be built forever, built up forever. In the heavens, I will establish your faithfulness. So, again, that contrast between steadfast love and faithfulness. but. We also have this concept of building, which we found, again, in 2 Samuel 7, the entire revelation that came from David through, through Nathan, uh, from God through Nathan, centers on David's desire to build a temple. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it gets flipped to God's d- promise to build David a house or a dynasty. Now, forever, uh, this is um, Ed Olam, it's found in 2 Samuel uh, 7, the a kingdom established forever. It was, it was a manifestation of the steadfast love. So the Targum reads that the world itself, what we inhabit today is built on steadfast love. And the sole purpose of creation is so God can bestow his steadfast love on humanity. So our support and our reality that we inhabit was an expression of steadfast love so that God could in turn give steadfast love. Hmm. And I, I kind of like the way they look at it because it's not, it is about what we were talking about last week. It's that, that pleasure and joy God has mm-hmm. in his creation. But it all begins with God's reigns in the heaven which God reigns in the heavens and on his throne with his divine court. And now it has to be manifest on the earth. And this is most notably done through the reign of David. (coughs) So verse three, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. Now the word covenant doesn't appear in second Samuel seven, but Samora points out that this Psalm and, as a, in its explanation of 2 Samuel 7, is evidence that 2 Samuel 7 was understood as a covenant promise between David and God. Mm-hmm. And we have several different places where God's eternal covenant are referenced by that title, but there's never a point where God says, this is my covenant. So when we're looking at David's 
David's life, this has to be the conversation where the covenant is made, right. even though the technical term isn't there. And then you know, we got to remember, too, eternal covenant is only used 16 times in the Bible. So it's not a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. It's only used really when we're talking about technical passages that are being very specific. Okay. And, you know, and this whole a whole situation with God and David and Samuel 7 really feels like two people having a conversation less than this formalized event. And we're going to talk about where we can see clues of that even more when we get to David's response. But we also have, again, my servant, David, my servant. We find David, my servant, or ser- my servant David in 2 Samuel 7. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah 55, 3 says, incline your ear, come to me and hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. It's also eternal. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the people, a leader, a commander for the people. Behold, you shall call a nation you do not know, and a nation that did not know you will run to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. So this passage is all about God's compassion for Israel. David's rule is compassion for the nation because it's the covenant God made with him. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Interesting. It's crazy when you begin to see how the prophets even address this. And you got to remember the prophets at this point, the, with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the end's already there. Right. And they're still saying this reign of David is compassion. This mm-hmm. covenant community, they're still clinging to this. And Isaiah there specifically said, hey, God's compassion for the entire world is based on David's reign. Yeah. And this covenant God made with him. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness and with all my heart and all my soul. Again, everlasting covenant. And the idea of planting, we find all of this language in 2 Samuel. So we got this in Isaiah, we got it in Jeremiah. Ezekiel 7, uh, 37, I'm not going to read the entire part of this. This is from verse 24 through 28. I'm just going to pull out some key phrases we find in that passage. Right. David, my servant, the shepherd, everlasting covenant, set up a sanctuary in their midst, is something that this is referring to, uh, specifically verse 28. It says, the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst forevermore. So that I concept of forever. Mm-hmm. So even though we don't have the word covenant in Samuel 7, we see that when the prophets talk about this, they're going to say, this is the everlasting covenant. Right. This, this is where we have to look back. And they all circle back to these shared terms. David is God's servant. God gives steadfast love. He's faithful. All these words are found in these passages. He's establishing a land for Israel, specifically for a place to worship. And God's reign extends to Israel and then to all the earth Mm -hmm. based on the basis of David's kingship. You can start to see how this is laying the foundation for what's going to be manifest in the New Testament. Right. And it gets really exciting. And so, um, you know, it lays the basis for if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you absolutely can because God told David it's going to be there. So verse four, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So 2 Samuel 7, 12 says, and I will raise up your offspring. 2 Samuel 15 and 16 says, we have the word twice. And we know that the, this is a physical political throne doesn't, that will not endure it's forever. It's a physical political what? It's a political... Blah, 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 blah. A political, <laughs> do you say term? A throne. Throne, okay. <laughs> throne. I'm sorry, yeah. I, mis- I misheard you. Yeah, a physical and a political throne. And we know it doesn't last forever. And, and you know, the thing is the Second Temple Jews, which is, you know, the people who were teaching at the time Jesus was alive, Mm-hmm. The sages, the rabbis, everybody that went after, they they know that. So they had to figure out a way to read this 
all of these promises, not just here in Samuel, but also where the Psalms talk about it and where the prophets talk about it in a way that dealt with the facts of the situation without turning loose of the truth of the situation. Mm-hmm. And so the, the solution was to see this as a future event and the hope that it would be realized under the Messiah, which is how we as Christians read it. We believe that Jesus is the one who reigns from David's throne. And, right. you know, that has it happened physically on the earth yet? Absolutely not. But notice the wording in Revelation 1, 4 through 6. I love it when you can go from beginning to end. Mm, yeah. It says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, divine counsel language, mm-hmm. and from the Son of, uh, from Jesus Christ, Christ, again, Messiah, like we were talking earlier, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, by his blood made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this everlasting covenant of the Messiah, God's chosen one, his servant, the faithful witness, all, all of these all of these words that we've been hearing through all of this other part right here in Revelation, mm-hmm. they're fulfilled in Jesus. And he is the one who is an offspring of David, of his own body. Yeah. This is why we have these genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Mm-hmm. God did not forget the promise uh, of, you know, that he made to David in that moment, because it wasn't just a promise to David, it was a promise to the whole world. Right. Yeah. Promise to the earth and, uh, and, and, and the people in it. Yeah. And, and so... And, yeah. I'll keep going. I'm sorry. I was no, about okay. to get into something else, but I, I think it's a little too far off from what we're talking about. But We'll see. We may wind up there anyway. Uh, but, you know, the thing is... At the same time, there's no need for God to adopt Jesus. So there, there's this really weird kind of tension of play. God adopts Solomon. Mm-hmm. God doesn't have to adopt Jesus. So Jesus fully embodies both the promise, the expected promise of David, but also the cultural expectations in being a son of God. Right. And so... This is a solution nobody from David's time would have seen coming. In you know, we we have a hard time. Um, we have a hard time hanging on to what this might mean and what that the implications of it all are when we start talking biology and sure. genia. Yeah. So now, for me, the passage in Revelation makes Psalms eighty nine even better as we continue, and so we're going to read some some really fun stuff. Verse 5, and this is Psalms 89, verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy One. So Revelation 4, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Right. So you got that connection. Verse 6 of Psalm 89. For who is in the skies can for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Revelation 7. Behold he who is coming in the clouds. Who among the heavenly beings? Again, Psalm 89. Revelation 5. Firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth freed us by his blood and loved us. So there's all these unique characteristics that he is not like anyone else of the heavenly beings in Revelation. Verse 7, And God, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the Holy One and awesome above all who are around him. Revelation 6, And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So, you know, God is going to rule over this council that fears him. And they just, they fit together so well. And, you know, even though the words aren't always exact, the themes and the concepts are completely identical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to, to miss that is it's to miss out on this great revelation of what God is doing and what he plans to do. Mm-hmm. And it goes right back here to David and the language about David connects us right back to Abraham and Abraham, the language about him connects us right back to Genesis six. And that takes us right back to Genesis one. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is something God is working out and has been working out since the dawn of time. And he hasn't lost control of it. He hasn't lost the plot. There is design and purpose in, within this plan. And somehow in a crazy act of sovereignty, 
he has allowed us the ability to move within that plan and still be self-actualizing human beings and accepting him. You know, we can participate and we aren't just little drones. So, but back to, to God, he, he's a wholly unique King who rules above all Kings because he rules in the heavens. And so when we talk about this, the, the, the fulfillment exceeds all expectations. And so we also realize that nothing else could fulfill the conditions of the covenant as God lays it out. Right. And so if we accept that kings back in the time of David were gods or sons of God, or even just representatives of God, the only, only the true God could rule over them. So this is why it's so important that David be adopted and God rule through him, where now with Christ, Christ is God himself and therefore is the only fitting ruler over all of the earth. Right. David can rule over Israel as a, as a, a foreshadowing, but only Jesus mm-hmm. could extend that, that realm, uh, that reign. Or the realm. Uh, verse six, when the psalmist asks, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? The, the, the Hebrew there is, uh, is heavenly being, but it, it's Ben Elim, which is literally sons of the mighty, uh, another title for God. Sons of God, and I know I don't have to prove this to most of our longtime listeners. I can't believe I can say we had longtime listeners. But uh, anyway, for those who've been with us. Sons of God always refers to a supernatural being. So when we're talking about the divine counsel imagery of, imagery of Job 2, it's very clear there. Definitely um, divine beings. When we're talking about believers, we're talking about people who are supernaturally created because we become sons of God through, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. salvation. Um, sons of God are always created. They're never born with only one exception. Jesus is the only exception to that. And that's the reason why he's completely unique, because he's holy God and holy man simultaneously, neither one being independent of the other. And so this is why Jesus is capable and worthy to rule over humanity and the spiritual realm. It Makes is, sense. It's his divine birthright. Nobody else is going to have that divine birthright. So this is why there's no other way to salvation except through Jesus. Sure. No, that, that, makes, so that makes a lot of sense. This is what I love about having to sit down and, and put all this together. So verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with, all your faithful, with your faithfulness all around you. Lord of hosts, typical title for God in Samuel. It's first uttered by our great gal Hannah. And this is the first woman, uh, first person to define what the rule of the Messiah would be. It's a woman who gives us the picture of what it means to live under the reign of the Messiah. And if you're reading, you know, take time, or if you're listening here, take time, pause for a second, go read 1 Samuel 2, hear what Hannah's prophecy is, and realize how much it applies not only to David, but it applies even more so to Jesus himself. So Lord of hosts, Lord of legions also refers to the militaristic, that's a fun word uh, to stumble over, aspects of God's reign. He is a God who commands armies and legions of angels. He is not just up there on his own doing nothing. He, He leads this army into war against those who oppose him. And unlike other gods, he is faithful. Uh, Art Scroll translate this, translates this um, verse as, your surrounding angels attest to your faithfulness. Hmm. So basically the ones who, who know you the best, the ones who've been with you since the beginning of time, who've been at your throne, witnessing and praising your every move, have this thing to say about our God. Mm-hmm. He's faithful. And so I, thought, I, I really like that translation. I think... Um, you know, the ESV sticks with a very literal set, uh, translation, but it kind of, you know, with your faithfulness all around you, you, you don't get that same imagery right there. So um, verse 5 through 8, I'm not going to read those uh, specifically. They, they present uh, God as presiding over this heavenly council and reigning over the heavens and all who reside. And I think I just read those verses, sorry. Uh, but <laughs> you get this imagery. So God is in heaven. He's on his throne. He's resi- resigning, 
residing over this uh, uh, divine council. And this is the basis for verses 9 through 14. And they focus on God's rule and creation. So we're going from heavens to earth. And the authority really does flow from the top down. God mm-hmm. can only rule on earth because he rules in the heavens. And he is the creator of the earth. And he gets to determine who reigns on his behalf, what created being mm-hmm. rules on his behalf here on earth. And so there, there really is a... This is not chaos. You know, there is a logic and methodology to how this is working out. And it it really is very obvious once you begin to look at the themes. Right. But a lot of times we don't look at the themes and we go, oh, it's just a big mess. And it's like, no, you got to grab a thread. (laughs) You know, you grab one thread. Well, I think that's probably a good place to break. Are we really? Yeah, we're like an hour four. Seriously? I feel like I've been talking like five minutes. We're at an hour, uh, an hour four here, um, but I think that's a good place to break when we're talking about, you know, we're, we're talking about his rule in heaven. Next week, we'll come back talk about his rule in earth. Like, seriously, I did not realize we were talking about... Can you all. see the timer from where you I, are? I was in my notes. Okay. Like, I got so excited preparing this one. Well, I know. It's, it's, it's good stuff, um, but... Uh, yeah, you know our listeners. Uh, if they're listening to us, they probably have other podcasts to get to, so they probably have their their schedule worked out. Um, and also, we want to make sure we have enough to get another episode in. Oh, definitely. So, I mean, shoot, that was <laughs> no problem at all on that. Okay, well, sorry to make that abrupt. We'll be back in a few minutes for us next week for you, and we'll talk about God's rule in the earth. And uh, I have a uh, some ideas about the next verse that I want to ask about. And see if I'm right. So anyway, everyone, uh, for that, come back next week. In the meantime, hit us up on Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is the website where you can find Joe Zaragoza with the Commentarians, Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington, and our newest uh, member here, uh, Josh? Josh Sherman. Joshua. Oh blank- Joshua Sherman. Yes, I'm sorry. And I, I was blanking on, I was trying to think, remember the name of his show. I could remember his name. Uh, Tending Our Nets. Um, I don't know why I blanked on that, but go check those out. They're good stuff, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.